Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 87, Space Shuttle Flight 20, STS-51I, The No-Strap Nap. Last time, we talked about STS-51F, which saw the return of Space Lab, some precise pointing, and some elaborate beverage dispensers. We also saw why Mission Control trains as hard as they do when Booster Officer and steely-eyed missile woman Jenny Howard maybe saved Challenger from having to perform a dicey landing in Spain. The crew and ground controllers for STS-51F were faced with a serious unplanned situation that needed to be resolved within seconds and fell back on their extensive planning and procedures to do so. Today's flight is going to be a little different. It too will handle a serious unplanned situation but the response will unfold over months with a decidedly more improvised approach. In April of 1985, Space Shuttle Discovery flew for the fourth time, carrying two communication satellites. The Annex C-1 commsat was deployed with no issues, but when LeaseSat-3 left the payload bay, things didn't go according to plan. The satellite did not power up as expected. Normally, this happens when a physical switch was thrown as part of the deployment sequence. LeaseSat-3, which is also known as SINGCOM-4-3, but that's a mouthful, was dead in the water. The crew of STS-51D came up with a clever improvised solution, a significant portion of which consisted of duct tape, the fly swatter. The fly swatter was used to flip the switch, once again demonstrating the flexibility afforded by flying a human crew, but it wasn't enough. The spacecraft still didn't work, and the crew was forced to return home. Around that same time, astronauts Ox Van Hoften and Mike Lounge were bored. So bored. People sometimes forget, but astronauts are, at the end of the day, government employees, who are not generally known for making the big bucks. Lucky for them, the Air National Guard needed pilots who were ready to leap into an airplane at a moment's notice if the United States was attacked and they were willing to pay a couple hundred bucks for these pilots to sit around in a hangar all weekend being bored. So Van Hoften and Lounge found themselves sitting around with nothing to do but to consider the plight of STS-51D. Lounge was still a rookie astronaut and had yet to fly, but almost exactly a year earlier, Van Hoften had flown on the dramatic rescue of the Solar Max mission on STS-41C. Both men were also assigned to the upcoming STS-51I. So, with time to kill, and one of the few people who had worked on a satellite repair mission on hand, they started to think about LeaseSat-3. What would be required to fix it? Well, first they'd have to grab it, which wouldn't be trivial since LeaseSat-3 was designed to scoot up to geostationary orbit and never be seen by humans again. There were no handholds or grapple fixtures. But there were trunnion pins, mounts where the spacecraft was attached to the orbiter payload bay. Maybe, just like with Solar Max, these trunnion pins could be leveraged into a workable solution. Van Hoften and Lounge imagined a sequence where Ox would be perched on the end of the shuttle's robotic arm, moved near LeaseSat-3, and then wait for the trunnion pins to rotate near him. He could then attach a custom handling bar to stop the rotation, using his own strength, allowing the crew to get to work. They did some back-of-the-envelope math, perhaps literally, and realized that it'd only take about 20 or 30 pounds of force to wrangle this 15,000-pound spacecraft. And then they'd essentially just need to hotwire it to get it started. Maybe there was something to this. When they got back from their weekend of boredom, they went to their mission commander, Joe Engel, 
and convinced him that this was something that was feasible and could be added to their flight. Now they just had to convince everyone else. As part of their day-to-day work, astronauts meet a lot of people in the space industry and are respected enough that people will usually listen if they come calling. The crew was able to meet with the engineers at Hughes who built the spacecraft and who had ideas on how to fix it, and with the Hughes management who signed off on the idea. They convinced the insurance company, who I'm sure were delighted that there was a chance to prevent a big payout, and perhaps most surprisingly, they somehow convinced NASA management. The crew's theory was that there were just so many flights that year, and the culture was so much less conservative, that they just sort of snuck through without a ton of scrutiny. For a mission with so many unknowns, so many risks, and only three months or so to train, it's pretty amazing that this rescue was ever given the green light. But green lit it was, and the crew got to work. I've already mentioned most of the crew, but let's do this thing properly. For this flight, we'll have the pilots, three mission specialists, and zero payload specialists. One of the crew members said that the lack of payload specialists could be explained by the extra equipment required for the EVA, but I also wonder if they just wanted things as streamlined as possible with such a harebrained scheme on the flight plan. Commanding the flight was Joe Engel, the only person, as of 2019 at least, to arrive at NASA already wearing astronaut wings, thanks to his X-15 experience. Engel nearly walked on the moon on Apollo 17, flew Enterprise in the approach and landing tests, and became the first commander of a reflown spacecraft with STS-2. With such impressive accomplishments already under his belt, a lot of new astronauts in the queue with no flights, and other challenges beckoning, Engel moved on after the spaceflight, making it his second, or third if you ask the X-15 program, and final flight. Joining Engel in the front seats as pilot was Dick Covey. Richard Covey was born on August 1st, 1946 in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but says his hometown is Fort Walton Beach, Florida. He graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy with a bachelor's in astronautical engineering, followed a year later by a master's in aeronautics and astronautics from Purdue. Covey spent several years flying several different fighter jets, completing 339 combat missions in the skies over Vietnam. When he returned home, he worked as a weapons system test pilot for the F-15, which was about to enter service. He was selected as an astronaut in 1978, and this is his first of four flights. Sitting in the back right of the flight deck was Mission Specialist 1, James, a.k.a. Ox, Van Hoften. As discussed earlier, we know Ox from STS-41D, where he and Pinky Nelson wrangled the Solar Max mission. He was also one of the few astronauts to perform an untethered spacewalk in the MMU. On a quick side note, after becoming more aware of them thanks to David Hitt and Heather Smith's book Bold They Rise, I've been spending a lot of time reading NASA's oral histories. I really recommend reading Van Hoften's oral history because his perspective on this mission is both fascinating and hilarious. I'll include a link in the episode announcement tweet, and if I forget, somebody should remind me. Anyway, Ox was fortunate enough to get two complex and interesting missions, so he bowed out to tackle his next career during the extended downtime following the Challenger accident, making this his second of two flights. Sitting in the middle of the flight deck was Mission Specialist 2 and Van Hoften co-conspirator Mike Lounge. John Michael Lounge, who went by his middle name, was born on June 28, 1946 in Denver, Colorado. Lounge earned a bachelor's from the U.S. Naval Academy and a year later picked up a master's in astrogeophysics from the University of Colorado. 
Lounge learned to fly from the Navy and spent several years and 99 combat missions serving as a radar intercept officer, operating complex systems in two-seater fighter jets. When he returned home, he spent some time teaching at the U.S. Naval Academy and working in the Navy Space Office before being scooped up by NASA in 1978. Before becoming an astronaut in 1980, he worked on space shuttle payloads and the Skylab Reentry Flight Control Team. This is his first of three flights. And last but not least, all by his lonesome down on the mid-deck, was Bill Fisher. Don't feel too bad, he swapped with Van Hoften for landing so he got to see the re-entry light show. William Fisher was born on April 1st, 1946 in Dallas, Texas. He studied biology before earning his medical degree in 1975. He completed a two-year surgical residency and spent three years in private practice specializing in emergency medicine before joining NASA in 1980. Fisher performed a bunch of support roles, including MMU development, RMS development, medical support, and the ever-coveted Capcom seat. He is husband of fellow astronaut Anna Fisher, and like her, would fly only once. Rendezvous missions always have fairly restrictive launch windows, and since the derelict LeaseSat-3 would only last so long, the rescue mission could only happen if the launch took place somewhat on schedule. The rest of the mission, which we haven't even talked about yet, would be able to proceed like normal, but the really exciting bit would be off the table. So it was especially disappointing that STS-51I's first two launch attempts ended in scrubs. The first scrub was due to the weather, and the second was due to a computer issue. The crew later complained that the weather was fine during the first attempt, and were told that the crew's job is to fly the vehicle, not to make weather-related decisions. The third attempt, on August 27, 1985, looked like it would go the way of the first two. It was raining so hard that the crew wore yellow raincoats on their way to the van that they rode to the pad. In fact, the crew was so certain that there was not going to be a launch today that something really unusual happened. I got this story completely from the oral histories, and decades-old memories can shift, so the precise details of this story may be a little off, but the core seems solid. The crew took the elevator up the fixed service structure, walked out to the white room, took off their rain slickers, and climbed into Discovery. The pad crew strapped them into their seats, closed the hatch, and departed the pad. Normally at this point, the pilot crew would work through their procedures and generally keep an eye on things, and most of the mission specialists would just try to get comfy and pass the time. Instead, Van Hoften and Lounge, who again are completely and totally sure that they are not going to space today, decided to undo their straps and go take a nap. Lounge crawled down, or I guess over, to the mid-deck, and Van Hoften stretched across his and Lounge's seats on the flight deck. Then they both fell asleep. Actually, it sounds like most of the crew spent the next couple hours dozing off. I'm sure the soothing sound of rain on the orbiter's windshield helped. So now we have this dozing crew, with two of them out of their seats, I think with Lounge just like on the back wall of the mid-deck, and Launch Control tells the pilot crew to start the auxiliary power units. The pilot crew was momentarily confused. Starting the APUs meant that they were actually about to launch in like less than 10 minutes, but it was clearly still raining, and that was against the mission rules. They asked Launch Control to repeat themselves to make sure they hadn't misheard, and then snapped into gear. Down below, one of the mission specialists, hearing the APUs come online, asked, what's that noise? 
Angle yells at them to get back in their seats. They're going. They're going now. Lounge and Van Hoften scrambled back to the flight deck, hopped into their seats, and started strapping each other in. A task that was made possible at all by the fact that at this phase of the program, the crew would launch in lightweight flight suits and not pressurized spacesuits. To the surprise of everyone, only a few minutes later, at 10.58am, the main engine spun up, the SRBs ignited, and the 20th space shuttle mission was underway. After the mission, when they mentioned their surprise at launching through the rain, the weather folks and astronaut boss John Young said that they did not realize it was raining at the pad. Why didn't they tell them? Engel responded by reminding them that they were clearly told their job was to fly the vehicle and not to make weather-related decisions. So they flew the vehicle. After an otherwise uneventful ascent, Discovery and its well-rested crew arrived in a circular orbit measuring 350 kilometers in altitude. The exciting part of this flight is definitely the LeaseSat-3 rescue mission, but the primary mission was to deploy a gaggle of commsats currently residing in Discovery's payload bay. With one deployment scheduled per day for the first three days of flight, this was a pretty routine and low-stress process. The plan for day one was to deploy ASC-1, a PAMD-equipped commsat. For day two, AUSSAT, an Australian commsat also equipped with a PAMD perigee kick motor. And on day three, LeaseSat-4, which was basically the same spacecraft as the one they were hoping to rescue. Satellites are pretty sensitive, so they were all kept in protective shields until it was time to deploy them. These sun shields were just lightweight mechanisms covered in material that protected the satellites from the sun. I'm not completely sure on this, so if someone knows, please drop me an email, but my understanding is that the PAMD sun shields are left open during ascent so as not to interfere with the payload bay doors. Once the doors are open, the shields are closed. Shortly after arriving on orbit, a late addition to the procedures was performed a quick visual inspection of the payload bay and check of the sun shields to make sure that everything made it through ascent with no issues. From what I can tell, this survey was done at least partially with the camera on the elbow joint of the RMS. The arm was still in the stowed position, but this big camera stuck to the side of it could be rotated around independently. It was rotated around, but the rotate back was forgotten. So when the shield for OzSat was commanded open for a health check, it jammed up against the camera, warping the fragile structure. This both left the spacecraft exposed and also left it without enough room in the shield to deploy. This was a problem, but the robot arm was pretty versatile and had helped other crews out of similar pinches before. They just have to carefully use the arm to gently push the shield open. Mike Lounge fired up the RMS tested it out, and discovered that the automatic control system in one joint had failed. They were going to have to do this the hard way. Normally the crew would basically just tell the end of the RMS where to go, leaving it up to the automatic control software to figure out what angle each joint needed to be at to make that happen. Instead, it was now reverted to single joint mode, which meant that Lounge had to move each segment on their own. Still usable, just trickier and slower, but Lounge was able to push the shield open, freeing OzSat for a deployment. But since the OzSat shield was now permanently open, and they couldn't just leave the satellite baking and freezing in random thermal environments, that meant that they had to deploy it that day instead of on the second day. 
This was actually not a trivial matter, since it meant that the orbiter's center of mass would not be where they expected it to be, since they were deploying the satellites out of order. And that's a big deal if they had to do an emergency deorbit and re-entry. So as soon as OzSat was on its way, attention turned to deploying ASC-1, which was thankfully done with no issues about four hours later. Both satellites ended up in slightly incorrect orbits, but their owners were able to rework their planned maneuvers, and they successfully arrived in geostationary orbit. And since LeaseSat-4 was deployed with no issues on flight day 3 as planned, attention turned to the rendezvous. Over the next couple of days, the crew performed the orbital maneuvers required to move to LeaseSat-3's orbit and move the shuttle closer. In a nice gesture for a commander, Engel let Covey perform the maneuvers for rendezvous, only taking over for proximity operations when they were about 1,000 feet away. As they edged up next to the stranded satellite, Engel switched from looking out the top windows to looking out the aft windows. The same hand controller was used for both sets of windows, but the operator is supposed to switch between modes so that the commands do what the operator expects. As an example, if you're looking through the top windows, nudging the hand controller up might cause the orbiter to scoot forward, but if you're in the aft window mode, it might cause the orbiter to scoot up. Or something like that. I don't actually know the real controls, but you get a similar 90 degrees from what you expected outcome. The result was that Leesat sort of wandered down the side of the orbiter and hung out back by the engines for a bit until Engel could rectify the situation. By this time, Ox Van Hoften and Bill Fisher were already suited up and in the payload bay, with Van Hoften perched at the end of the robot arm. Thanks to the arm difficulty, some extra finesse on the thrusters was used to bring him into position next to the satellite. And that was the point where Van Hoften wondered what the heck he was going to do about a problem they had noticed immediately after arriving. The satellite wasn't spinning. It had been spinning when the STS-51D crew left it, and the plan counted on it to be spinning. But it wasn't. Or at least not in any meaningful way. It seems that the 51D rescue attempts with the fly swatter and the interaction of the spacecraft's metal frame with the magnetic field of the Earth had caused it to slow down to a near standstill. The reason that this was a problem was that Van Hoften had been counting on that spin to bring the trunnion pins into view so that he could snap a handling bar onto them, gaining control over the satellite. No spin, no pin. As he considered what to do, Discovery entered an extended period of no communications with the ground. Van Hoften thought back to his training and remembered the strenuous warnings to not grab the bottom edge of the satellite since it could be sharp and he might tear his glove. He took a look at the edge, seemed fine to him, so he said to Lounge operating the arm, fly me up there, waited until he was within reach, and grabbed on. So now he's on the end of this 50-foot robot arm, flying at 17,500 miles per hour, 360 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, just wrestling this 15,000-pound spacecraft. Now that the thing was moving, Ox was able to find the trunnion pins and clip on a handling bar, which was just an easy handhold for him to use. He then slowly rotated the spacecraft around to present the other side to Fisher down in the payload bay. Fisher attached a handling bar of his own, allowing Van Hoften to take his off and replace it with a grapple bar, which was the same thing but with an RMS grapple fixture. Lounge then brought Van Hoften back down into the payload bay so that he could hop off, 
and finally took the RMS back up to grapple the satellite, relieving Fisher. At that point, the satellite was secure and stable. All that was left to do was, you know, actually fix the thing. To fix it, they first had to ensure that it was in a safe state and wasn't about to just come to life after all and rocket away. They then had to open an access panel and, like I mentioned earlier, essentially hotwire it. They installed some new electronics that bypassed circuits suspected to have failed on the first attempt. To be honest, I don't really understand the repairs themselves, so I'll just read a quick excerpt from the mission report. Quote, Activities completed during the EVA included installation of the shorting plugs, safe and arm pins, and the spun bypass unit. Also, the despun test access panel was removed, the remote power unit harness was mated, and the Omni antenna was deployed. The final item to be completed during this first EVA was installation of the RPU cover plate. End quote. When they came back inside, Van Hoften and Fisher had set a new record for the longest EVA of the shuttle program so far, 7 hours and 10 minutes. The next day, they popped back outside for another 4 hours and 20 minutes to finish the job, replacing the perigee kick motor cover, removing the safe and arming pins, and setting the spun bypass unit timers. The spacewalkers then took off the grapple bar and attached yet another bar dedicated to spinning up the spacecraft. Ox gave it a big spinning push, not unlike that giant wheel on The Price is Right, and LeSat 3 began to spin. The pilot crew operated the thrusters to chase the retreating spacecraft and keep Van Hoften near the spinning satellite so that he could get three more good pushes in, eventually getting it up to 2.7 RPM. It would go on to finally travel to geostationary orbit and successfully complete its mission after a rocky start. Discovery returned home after 7 days, 2 hours, 17 minutes, and 42 seconds, during which time it completed 112 trips around the world. And with that, a highly unusual shuttle mission was in the books, and the podcasts. This mission is really something else. Everything from its bottom-up creation to stuff like unstrapping before the launch, or just going for it with an uncertain capture. It's the stuff of spaceflight legend, or it would be if more people knew about the flight. But there were also some pretty sizable and perhaps unnecessary risks, and I think it really encapsulates NASA's attitude in 1985. It was this incredibly positive and optimistic feeling of, we could do anything. The shuttle program was in full swing, and what would have been impossible just a few years earlier was already becoming routine. The crews were self-sure, well-trained, and more than willing to wing it a bit for the sake of a successful mission. It was this great period where it was like NASA had skipped a step, and they were already at the spaceflight-is-routine future that we've always dreamed about. But it wasn't routine yet. This was only the 20th flight of the orbiter, of which there were only four space-worthy instances in the world. The realities of schedule pressure, budget pressure, and risk had yet to catch up to 1985, NASA. I don't bring this up to be a downer, but rather to try to bring you into the same headspace of the astronauts, mission controllers, managers, technicians, contractors, and everyone else in the NASA organization. It was heady times, and they were on top of the world. Next time. Did I say there were four spaceworthy orbiters? That can't be right. Of course, we've got Enterprise, but good old OV-101 wouldn't fly again. And then we've got Columbia, Challenger, and Discovery. That's three. But what's this? 
a new character has joined the fray. Join us in two weeks as we try to find something to say about NASA's second all-classified mission and follow the first flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.